0: Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also reigned through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. And thank you for bearing with me this morning, church. I have been Recovering from sickness, and I realize I also miss dismissing children. So if you've got a zero to five, and I think we have folks down there today, then you are welcome to dismiss them at this point as well. Good job, kids, sticking around.
1: All right. Well, we are, uh, we're going to take a two-week break from 2 Timothy, and we're going to do something a little bit different, the next two sermons will be a little bit different than our sermons typically, my sermons typically are, or our sermons here typically are, rather than being primarily in one passage and uh, really concentrating on that. We're going to kind of be all over the place, so... If you like to follow in your Bible, you may want to have your, uh, your page-flipping fingers stretched out um, because we may be venturing all over. But what I want to do for the next two weeks is I want to see how Christ's advent, how uh, His coming, His incarnation, as Coleman was telling us, <clears throat> is the climax of two major themes that run throughout Scripture. So that's what I want to do for the next two weeks, and then we'll get back to 2 Timothy, and we'll finish up 2 Timothy, so don't worry about about that. Um, But, you know, for many, Christmas is a wonderful time and a joyous day of celebration, but for many others, it is as intensely not that. It's as intensely not wonderful and not joyous. Now, the critical factor, I think, in that often tends to be who is with us or who is not with us. Right? Sometimes it's who is with us that makes it not so wonderful. <laughs> you know, don't you know? If you have if you have uh, relatives sitting around you, just don't 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 nod too much. Um, <clears throat> but typically, it is who is not with us anymore that makes it not wonderful and not joyous. It's the people that we miss. It's the reminder of not just lost loved ones, but those who are no longer with us because of the consequences of sin, right? Those who are no longer with us because of broken relationships and broken marriages, broken families, disputes of different kinds that never were fixed years ago i was giving some pastoral counsel to a young man whose wife had just left him and all of his buddies who were you know 23 or something like that at the time uh, and never had been married attempted to console him by telling him oh it's 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 actually not that bad it's actually kind of good it's it's just like it's like the reset button got pressed on your life it's not that big of a deal you get to, you get to you know like it's a video game or something. <clears throat> I, I remember telling him, that that's not, that's not how it works. And, and I remember him saying, thank you, thank you. Because I, deep down I knew that's not how it works. See, marriage is a covenant relationship. He knew. You don't just press a reset button. Broken covenants have consequences. Broken covenants leave scars. In fact, all these things that pain us on Christmas and every other day, they're all the consequences of broken covenants. What I want you to understand is, though we can't press the reset button, there can be redemption. Christmas may touch that nerve, It may remind us of these things. But far from Christmas being the problem, when you sweep away all the fluff that comes with Christmas, right? When you sweep all that away, Christmas, Christ's coming, Christ's advent, is actually the beginning of the answer to that pain. See, the pain that comes with the separation of death, with a loved one who is no longer with us, all of that, it points to a deeper separation, a deeper reality, a deeper need of our soul that on our own, we, as Ephesians 2.12 tells us, are without God in the world. That on our own, We are not just separated from other people because of sin, but we are separated from God Himself because of our sin. But Christmas celebrates Emmanuel. Christmas celebrates Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. But God with us isn't some trite saying. This is what I want you to understand, and what I hope to show you uh, uh, this morning is that God with us is not just some trite saying that we made up because it sounds good in a Christmas song, okay? God with us is something that God made up before the ages began. What I want you to get this morning is this, that the heart of God's covenant plan has always been God with us. The heart of God's covenant plan, at the very heart of His plan for all of redemption, for all of history, at the very heart of it, has always been Emmanuel, God with us. When you start to understand God's covenants, how it could be that we, sinners as we are, could ever be in the presence of a holy God, you begin to understand that the heart of God's covenant plan has always been God with us, it makes God's great love for us even more vivid than it ever has been before. And so, I hope to give you a broad overview by answering three big questions that relate to three major covenants in Scripture. And so, we're going to look at this idea of covenant throughout Scripture very briefly and see how it centers on God with us, We're going to look first at the covenant of works, and we're going to ask the question, what does God, why does God have a covenant plan? Then we're going to look at the covenant of redemption, and we're going to ask the question, when did God make a covenant plan? And then finally, we're going to look at the covenant of grace, and we're going to ask the question, what is God's covenant plan? And you're going to have to bear with me, because I am also dealing with <coughs> some issues here, so. All right. What is a divine covenant? We got to ask the question, what is a divine covenant? Well, I'm going to define it this way this morning. Lots of people have lots of definitions. <clears throat> so this is, this is uh, my, my definition, I guess. Uh, it is a sovereignly administered life and death bond. <clears throat> a sovereignly administered life and death bond. It's sovereignly administered in that God sets the terms of it. There is no negotiations. You need to understand this. When God makes a covenant with, with anything, there is no negotiating. There is no saying yes or no. He says, I'm making this covenant, and you say, okay. <laughs> That's how it works, okay? He decides it. We, he is God. He is creator. We are creatures, but you also need to understand that it is a mutual bond. He makes promises. When He makes a covenant, He makes promises, and He will keep them. He is bound to that covenant. He binds Himself, God, the Creator of all things, binds Himself to a covenant with creatures. How wildly condescending that is for Him to do. And we are called in this bond. We are called to trust him, often in particular ways that are set forth in that covenant. And finally, it is a life and death bond, meaning there are blessings and there are curses for breaking it. And those blessings and those curses are literally life and death. And we see this in uh, one, one person says that it's a, he calls it a bond in blood. And, 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 he, and he says that to, to illustrate the fact that not only is it life and death, but then all of those covenants that God makes always relate to, to like, blood is always present. Blood is always shed. This is the, the, the stakes when you make a covenant with God. <laughs> it's, when you make a, eternal, a covenant with an eternal God, there are eternal stakes, right? So God even describes his sustaining of the order of the cosmos as a covenant that he has with all creation in Jeremiah 33:25, it says, "His covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth." So, His sustaining of all things is covenantal, but when God creates humanity, He not only brings Him into that universal covenant of of sustaining that He does with all created things, but He brings Him into a unique covenant, one that elevates Him above the rest of creation. To understand this and to understand what went wrong, we need to understand the covenant of works in history. What is the covenant of works then? Well, The first covenant with Adam in the garden is typically called the covenant of works. And that name uh, could be called the covenant of works. Some people call it the covenant of creation. Some people call it the covenant of life. There's some different names that people use, and that could kind of create some confusion. Um, But oftentimes, uh, that, that name, covenant of works, it can make us think, perhaps, that Adam deserves to be in God's presence. That somehow, because you know, Adam was created, he hadn't sinned yet, that he deserved to be in God's presence. And if he hadn't sinned, that he would have deserved to stay there purely on his own merit of not having sinned. But that's not the case. I want you to understand that. That is not the case. Even without sin, the Creator is still completely other than the creation. God is not just a really big, perfect human. He is God, okay? And we forget this all the time, that even in His essence of what He is, He is completely different, completely other than, completely transcendent from us. God is holy, so He's set apart from everything. To be with God, we need to be set apart by God. God has to set us apart and make us holy to be in his presence. And so we see this in Genesis chapter 1, 27 to 28. (coughs) If you are wanting to turn there, you can, but you may, I may read it before you get there. Um, Genesis 1, 27 to 28 says this: So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. When God creates humans, what is the first thing He does? He blesses them. He blesses them. He gives them grace, not in a redemptive way, not in, not in the redemptive way that sinful man needs grace, but it is unmerited favor nonetheless. Adam did not merit God saying, I bless you. Adam did not merit, Eve did not merit God blessing them. God did that because He loves. And then God begins to speak, and He begins to relate to that humanity that He has just created and that He has just blessed. And what is it that He communicates? Well, He begins to lay out the beginning uh, of the covenant. He begins to lay out what the stipulations are. This is what you're supposed to trust me with. You are supposed to trust me with filling the earth, multiplying, and having dominion. We see, when we think about the garden, we typically think that the stipulation is don't eat from the tree. But don't eat from the tree came uh, uh, later. That was a specific stipulation. The general stipulation was be fruitful in and cultivate the earth as rulers of it on God's behalf. See, God is the big king, if you will, and Adam and his sons were to be the little kings who managed and spread his kingdom in the earth on his behalf. All of this is a blessing. Do you get this? Like, think about it. We think that Adam just kind of like deserved all these things because he's so great, but God is giving him a place and a purpose. He's giving him a role in his creation. He's blessing him with that. And at the heart of this, at the heart of all of this, is God's presence, right? God walks with Him in the garden, it says. Ultimately, God is life. And the great blessing of obedience to Him is eternal life. But the curse of disobedience is death. And so when Adam broke the covenant of works it brought the curse. And what what does Adam then have to do with us? Well, in our passage that was read earlier, Romans 5, verse 12, it says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, in God's covenants, there are what what theologians call covenant heads or federal heads. There is a person, one person can represent a group of people in a covenant with God, and their sin affects all who are in that covenant. So Abraham and Noah and Moses, all the kings of Israel, they were covenant heads. Adam, when Adam sins, that covenant is broken. He becomes a covenant breaker, and all who he represents, all of humanity, everyone who comes from him, are also into life as covenant breakers. The covenant doesn't go away when it's broken. The covenant doesn't go away when it's broken. We just live under its consequences now. We are already corrupted by sin and we will sin inevitably. So we are unable to keep that covenant. We cannot be with God. And we do deserve death, each and every one of us. Not and, and I want to say this because <clears throat> sometimes we can think of this in like just very general terms like, oh yeah, I know that everyone in the in the world sins, and I know I'm, I'm I'm an I'm an everyone in the world, so therefore I must sin, and so therefore, you know, I guess I need Jesus. But what I want you to stop and think is no, you have specifically sinned in specific ways throughout your life, probably already today before you even got here. And and that sin, I want you to understand that. That sin is not just a sin against, you know, your, your son or your daughter or your spouse or your parents' kids. It's not just a sin against them. That sin is first and foremost an affront to God who creates you, who created Adam and said before he ever did anything, I bless you and let me give you all of this, and then Adam sins against him, that is an affront to God just as much as, that, as Adam's sin was an affront to God. Whatever that is. We, we miss this sometimes. We forget this that God is a holy God who, is, who has given us everything, life and breath and all of creation, and every day we offend that. So we cannot be with God, we deserve death. Therefore, we need a new covenant head, one that can first of all satisfy this covenant of works. For since we've already broken it, and it can't simply be discarded, someone must satisfy it. And then second, we need Him to also, uh, since we, we only relate to God through covenants, we need a new covenant, a different covenant, that can cover the covenant that we've already broken. But God has a plan. In Romans 5.18, it says, "'Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men,' So, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So, the covenant of redemption, then, is the next covenant I want to look at. And we need to ask ourselves when did God make a covenant plan? When did He make the covenant plan? Well, what is the covenant of <clears throat> redemption? The covenant of redemption is often called, uh, sometimes can also be called the pactum salutis. Okay, kids that are taking Latin. Pactum salutis. Okay, it relates to peace. Okay, you're on on the right track. In Latin, it stands for uh, the council of peace. The council of peace. There is some highly technical debates as to whether it should be called the covenant or some prefer to title it the covenant of redemption, you know, all these different things. That's all confusing. For today, what I want you to understand is this. Here are the basics. The council of peace or the covenant of redemption is an agreement made between the persons of the Trinity in eternity past. It is an agreement made between the persons of eternity in eternity past to save humanity. <clears throat> the Father promises to redeem and elect people. The Son promises to earn that salvation and mediate for them. And the Holy Spirit applies the work of the Son to those people. Well, you might say, <clears throat> well, where's that in the Bible? <clears throat> and you're asking the right questions. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a good job of training you, right? Where's that in the Bible? Well, we get no account of it, and of course we don't get an account of something that happened outside of temporal space and time, right? How could there be an account of that? You know, it's not like you could sit down and you could go, well, let me tell you the account of the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son in eternity past, before time existed, before there was, you know, you can't do that. So uh, there's no account of it, and yet we have plenty of evidence of it. Here are some passages, though certainly not an exhaustive list. Not only in Romans 5 do we see that there is always a plan for Jesus to be a covenant head of God's people, but we also see that in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And due to this, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus has a kingdom now. And there's an agreement that it would be this way, and that Jesus would hand that kingdom back to the Father, as it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen, twenty-four. Um, <clears> 24. <throat> let me turn there. Let me read that. But each... In, okay. "...for as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ." Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. <coughs> well, how, how does Paul know that this is all the case? Well, in Luke twenty two twenty nine, Jesus has already said, I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. And so we know that this is already a plan that, that God and, and the Son had in place in Psalm 2 we also see that the Lord says ask of me and i will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession so jesus has already promised has already been promised all of these things in ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 9 and 10 we gives us greater evidence of this it says even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that he that we should be holy and blameless before him according to his purpose which he set forth in christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So, before the world, all of this was part of God's covenant plan. (coughs) In John 6, Jesus is talking about it, and He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The father had a specific will for the son, and the son had agreed to do that specific will, exactly that specific will, and nothing else. And the father promises the son, and the son promises the father. And the son says, yeah, on the last day, I will raise all and each and every one up. So to, to recap, man and woman were with God under the covenant of works but they broke that covenant, bringing the curses of it upon them and on, on, on all of humanity, separating us from God. but far from being a surprise to God, he already had a plan in place to reconcile us to Him. I want you to like understand this <clears throat> that, that when Adam sinned, it wasn't as if God was like, "Oh, what am I going to do now?" Uh, hold on, time time out, time out, time out. Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit huddle. We got to figure out a new plan, you know. It's not as if that's what happened. This was the plan. There has only ever been one plan, and that plan will be executed to perfection in each and every way until the end of time. That's how God works. And at the heart of that plan... Is the Son, Emmanuel, God with us. So what is God's covenant plan? Well, let's talk about the covenant of grace. What's the covenant of grace? We could define the covenant of grace this way: it's that overarching covenant that acts out in history, the covenant of redemption. So the covenant of redemption that that God had made, <coughs> um, the covenant of grace acts it out in history, in space and time. First, God plants the seed of redemption in the soil of the curse. <clears throat> right at the point which the covenant of works is broken, before God even details the consequences on woman and man specifically, and I want you to catch this because I think this is, not, uh, uh, is no insignificant thing. Before God details the curses that are going to come on man and woman, because of breaking the covenant of works, before He does that, He already plants the seed of redemption. He already reveals the promise of His gracious plan of redeeming them, both in pronouncing judgment on Satan and also promising redemption. And at the core of that promise is an offspring, a seed, who will be Jesus Christ, God with us. Genesis, 14, or Genesis 3, 14 and 15 says this, the Lord said to the serpent, <clears throat> because of you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." <clears> Thus, at the very mention, the very first mention of the covenant of grace is right there—the reality of Christmas. The very, the very first mention of the covenant of grace—that that an offspring would come who would bruise the head of the serpent. It's Christ, God with us that although the curse brings death in the world, the covenantal plan God already had in place was to send His own Son into the world, that He he was God with us, so that we could once again be with God. So, God plants the seed of redemption in the soil of the curse, but also God progressively reveals His plan of redemption in covenants throughout history. He does this through numerous covenants in the Old Testament, each manifestation or each dispensation revealing more about what He is doing. And I'm going to focus this morning, for time's sake, I'm going to focus on Abraham, Moses, and David. And I want to show you passages that, that, that reveal that at the core of each one of these covenants is this idea of God with us. <coughs> All right, with Abraham, things start to unfold And we can see God's promise to be with his people. If you turn to Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, it says this, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will be their God. I will be their God. You will be my people. And God visits Abraham and he visits Isaac and he visits Jacob, doesn't he? In unique, in temporal ways, he, he, he does that. But it's not all that God intends. And then Moses mediates a covenant with all of God's people. And we see that, uh, see it here. Uh, uh, we see this principle here as well. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, God sends Moses to free his people from slavery. And he declares, <clears throat> quote, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. And then in Leviticus 26, 12, he says, I will, be, I will walk among you. Does that sound like anything? I will, I will walk among you, and you will be... Oh, oh, sorry, I misspoke. I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. <clears throat> You see, they aren't different covenants, so much as they are covenants that build on each other, the core of which is the covenant of grace, At the core is this idea that God is with us. We, he will be our God, and, and we will be His people. And God's presence there at, uh, with Moses and, and in the wilderness and in the promised land, God's presence is among the people in a cloud, and He's among the people in a tabernacle. But that's not all that God intends. There's more. Later, David becomes king, right? And he mediates a greater revealing of of what this is. And David, if you remember, at the end of his life, he wants to build a permanent house, a permanent temple where God can dwell among the people. But God says, not so fast. I I never needed a building before. What are you talking about? But God tells David, no, I... We'll build you, David, a house. And he uses a, a kind of sort of wordplay there, a related word that means dynasty. And in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14, this is what God says. God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now Solomon does build the temple and God does dwell there, but that's not all that God intends. There will be another son. There will be another son, the true son, And He will build a temple. It's not made of stone, but living stones. Those who are filled with His Holy Spirit. And God will dwell in and among them. You see, none of these administrations of the covenant were sufficient. They did not fully reveal the plan, nor produce all that God had planned. So, when the prophet's God revealed that there would be a new and an everlasting covenant, one that would fulfill all the promises of these old administrations, sometimes putting aspects to an end and sometimes advancing them to their full meaning, and, and it will establish this Emmanuel principle. And we see this in a lot of different places, Jeremiah 31 33, Ezekiel 11, but I want to highlight one specifically. We, we read it earlier, Ezekiel 37, 24 to 27. <clears throat> Because I think it alludes to all of these previous covenants. And then it identifies them as being fulfilled in this everlasting covenant. So if you, if you have that, if your finger was still in there from earlier or whatever, your bookmark, you can turn there. But let me read this. <clears throat> my servant David shall be a king over them. There's the Davidic covenant. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statues. There's the Mosaic covenant. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. There's the Abrahamic covenant. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. There's the Mosaic covenant again. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. There's the Davidic covenant again. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. There's the new covenant. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And we turn to Ephesians, Chapter two. we find we find this this is interesting. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, remember that you were at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Not to the, co- to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, Have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And now, if you skip down, it says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. What God did, you you realize, in Ezekiel 37, you remember that whole bit about him saying, well, oh, Ezekiel takes this stick and take that stick. Now put the sticks together. What's this all mean? What's this all mean? Well, Paul says to the Ephesian church, you want to know what that means? That means God takes his people from Israel, he takes his people from the Gentile nations, and he gets rid of the dividing wall, and he brings them together in Christ as one man, one church, one people. He will be their God. They will be his people forever. God with us. He takes the dead bones. Dead in sin, separated from God. And his spirit breathes a life into them. And they become a great army for God. That's what he does for us. That's what Christ did when he came. So we possess the blessings of redemption by faith in Christ. Church, you possess the blessings of redemption by faith in Christ. I told you that covenants had stipulations or conditions which bring about blessing, and this covenant is no different the condition for the covenant of grace is and always has been faith. Now, someone might say, whoa, 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 but, but I thought, what are you talking about condition? I thought God's love is unconditional. Well, if by unconditional you mean that God unilaterally came up with this covenant plan, unilaterally performed it, and guarantees it, then sure, Unconditional. No one, no one from Adam to today is saved outside of faith in Christ, so what you want, I want you to understand no one from Adam until today until the end of the the world is saved outside of faith in Christ. Another may object well <clears throat> but but what do you mean that we have this condition of faith? Um, We don't do, you know, I thought you said we don't do anything to merit salvation. Well, true enough, I agree. Again, we do not do anything to merit salvation. If by condition you are meaning merit, then yes, it does not have that kind of condition. But there is a difference I want you to see between meritorious conditions and necessary conditions. I'll steal an illustration from someone else that I think illustrates it pretty well. To get into a ball game, you need a ticket, right? You can go to the ball game today, you need a ticket to get into the ball game. That's a condition. Now you might have had to do you might have had to work really hard to earn that ticket. That would be a meritorious condition. Or that ticket may also have been given to you as a gift. It's still needed, but it is not merited. That's a necessary condition. You need it to enter the ball game, but you did nothing to merit it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's why that's so important. The heart of God's covenant plan is not, is not God with us so that we simply have an example to follow in order to earn our salvation. The heart of God's covenant plan is not God with us, so that we simply have an example to follow so we can earn our salvation. Those who are in Christ will follow his example in many ways, but that's not why he came. If that was why he came, then we would merely have only had God with us for 30 years or so. And then we'd just be by ourselves just trying to do it, just trying to do our best, just trying to follow that example. Trying to be God is what we'd be, we would be doing. If Jesus was merely an example, then that's all it would be. But Jesus was more than just an example. And for those whose faith is in him, we are in Christ forever. And His Spirit is in us always. And Ephesians says that we right now are seated with Him in the heavenly places. He came to be the new Adam, living perfectly and fulfilling the covenant of works and establishing the covenant of grace that we could be with Him forever. Romans 5, 17 and 18 says this, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. By grace, through faith, we are united to Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We are made holy. We are now and will be forever with God. And since Christ is the true Son, we are in Him. We are adopted as offspring of Abraham. As children of God, receiving an inheritance of an eternal dwelling with God. And since Christ is the true temple, the true uh, throne, right, we are in Him. We are, and since we are in Him, we are the temple in which the Spirit now dwells. And since Christ is the true King, and we are in Him, we are citizens of His kingdom, reigning with Him. So this faith is not merely believing that a Jesus existed and then trying to do what we can as well as we can. That's not really living by faith in Christ. Nor is it simply saying Jesus took care of it so now I can do whatever I want because that's not really living by faith in Christ either. It's the kind of faith. Faith in Christ is the kind of faith that always has two buddies along with it. The first buddy is repentance. Recognition that I am a sinner, specifically, I have sinned. I'm corrupt to the core. I need to turn away from that which I used to put my faith in, myself, my works, my whatever. And I need to place my faith in Christ instead. And the second buddy that always comes along with faith is is works. You see, faith is not a dead faith. Faith is a living faith. It's an obedient faith. If we place our faith in Jesus, then it will consequently result in faithful lives. Not just a faith in myself that I can follow the law on my own, but a faith that believes God exists and that he rewards those who seek him, as Hebrews 11.6 tells us. So the heart of God's covenant plan has always been God with us. And we have a reminder of that each year at Christmas, if we want to take up that reminder. If we keep ourselves from being distracted. And when that sting of pain comes because of those who are no longer with us, let it not be a pain that causes us to turn away from looking to Christ, which only leads to us breaking that covenant with Him. But rather, let that sting of pain be that which causes us to look to Christ. To remind us that through, to remind us that though others break covenant, He never will. That He came and died to establish it. That He sends His Spirit as a guarantee of it and he is restoring all things. And one day he will reunite all who are in him. Let's pray.